You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hey, you, Kevin. How are you? Not too bad. How have you been going with uh, the whole new lockdown stage four? I, I, I actually <laughs> have been zoning right out. And what I'm finding is I thought that people with all the spare time on their hands would become far more productive and do all these things. But what I'm realising that everybody's just hibernating and they've all gone to sleep i think everybody's enjoying the the big chill uh, so you know i know some people are doing it hard and and there's a lot of uh, disruption but i speak to a lot of people and they are actually kind of enjoying the fact that they can just chill which is a nice it's side effect nice to slow down a bit yeah anyway but now we've got to get back into things i like to watch insiders on a on a sunday morning quite often and and mm-hmm. uh, a couple of weeks ago i heard josh frydenberg talking uh, he's asked a question where where he's drawing inspiration to find his way out of the economic situation and he said that he was drawing upon maggie thatcher and uh ronald reagan <laughs> and, uh, and i almost <laughs> fell off my chair <laughs> <laughs> Maggie Thatcher, who seems to think that the government can run out of money. Oh, man, oh, man. I mean, if, seriously, if that's his inspiration, we, this is going to be a very yeah. rocky ride. So we need to we need to explore debt. I think we do, because Frodo and ScoMo, they're both trying to scare us with this word debt, I think. There are two really scary words in economics. One of them is debt, and one of them is inflation. And we'll spend a whole show at some point looking at inflation uh, but today we, we need to look at this debt thing and I think they're peddling all these false ideas about debt and they're trying to scare everyone. Now, why would they be trying to scare everyone with this idea of debt? And I think that it's a way of keeping unemployed people in poverty for one thing and it's a, it's a way of wrecking the environment in the name of making money. So what we need to do is understand debt so we can give them a well-educated finger. <laughs> Next time they start BSing. If everybody understands the nature of debt, of government debt, and, and they understand that government debt is voluntary, essentially the government borrows from itself, it pays itself back, it can give itself as much time to, to pay itself back. Apparently mm-hmm. we're still paying off um, technically stuff from the 1920s and the 1930s, which is to say it makes no bloody difference how long it takes to, to pay off your self-imposed exactly. debt. It, it, it's important to understand what government debt is so you can then open your fiscal mind mindset uh, and start applying spending to things like a national job scheme. And this has all been done before. It was done after World War II. And so our angle here is to understand that the government needs to become far more involved in the economy mm-hmm. than its neoliberal hands-off approach, uh, leaving everything to the private sector. This is no time for the private sector to be ruling the economic lives of, of our citizens. The government needs to intervene. Mm-hmm. And to intervene, we need to know the fiscal capacity of the government to intervene. Therefore, we need to understand debt. Exactly. Fiscal capacity being the capacity to spend. And so that's why you need to understand the debt. And I have to admit, Kevin, you know, my indifference to economics was so complete (laughs) a few years ago that I had no idea that this government debt was about bonds. When they say that the government is issuing bonds, technically, 
they're allowed to say that that's called issuing debt. So that's how come they're allowed to talk about debt. And technically, if someone's buying the bonds, then they're buying the debt, which means they're lending. So technically, you can say that the government is borrowing from whoever's buying the bonds. So it's really interesting in how this terminology gets used because that is essentially how this ideological battle gets fought and it gets fought out on this sort of terrain of what you described the fiscal policy and the monetary policy. And as you said, the reason that this uh, battle gets going is because the neoliberals on the whole, they hate what they call active fiscal policy, which is basically the government taking a more active role in the economy. And what's that active role? That's spending in order to supply public goods like full employment, like a job guarantee, like, you know, infrastructure, like a highway system or an electrical grid or an internet grid or whatever. If the neoliberals can convince us that government spending is bad, if they can convince us that the debt is something to get scared of, then they can push the government out of those sectors and take them over for themselves. So they can squeeze the government out of, for example, energy provision and start exploiting it. It's a way for greedy people to get rich, essentially. Uh, and. Uh... <laughs> At the social expense, as we've learnt with like the energy sector, I mean they've screwed it up. It's it costs more. They're stuck in the old way of of, of sourcing uh, energy through coal because it, it suits their profit uh, demands. So we need to explore all that. But now, who are we speaking to to investigate this concept of debt? We're going to continue our conversation with Professor Martin Watts, who is an economist at the University of Newcastle, and then. Later in the show, we'll also speak with Dr. James Juniper, who is a colleague of Martin at the same institution. Back when we first talked to Martin, he was explaining there's all these things that you need to sort of understand if you really want to get a grip on this debt business. So what you need to understand is that the Australian government is a monetary sovereign, which means it can never run out of Australian dollars. You kind of need to understand how the Parliament and the Treasury and the Reserve Bank of Australia all work together. You need to understand what bonds are, who's buying them and who's selling them and when. (laughs) And you sort of need to understand what reserves are. So all of that Martin explained to us. And in this bit of the conversation, he's going to talk to us about this policy of full funding, which is the current way that the government is issuing debt, and the alternative, which is known as overt monetary financing. Let's hear from Professor Martin Watts. Martin, we've been talking a lot about debt just because... It really is in the headlines at the moment and it's scaring everybody and except for me and Kevin, we're quite relaxed about it. (laughs) We talk about the public debt. Now, debt is not something that needs to be paid back. It's simply all the accumulated deficits over time. Would that be correct? Yes. That debt's always in the form of bonds. Is that right? Yes, there are treasury bills and there's bonds. Okay, so that's the public debt. Uh, and this continues to intrigue me. And that is the the rhetoric about issuing debt and the idea of full funding, you know, that you've got to cover your deficit with debt issue, applies to spending and to treasury. But the central bank goes on its merry way, particularly in countries like UK, US, Japan and the Eurozone. They've been knocking around with quantitative easing for years. 
buying vast amounts of bonds, in some case corporate bonds as well as government bonds, trying to push down the long-term interest rate. There's never any question about the central bank going bankrupt. In fact, by definition, it can't. But equally, the same applies to Treasury and the fiscal side of the economy. And I think that's, that's really important. But people never comment on the central bank and what it gets up to. What would happen if bonds weren't issued? What difference would it make to the fiscal capacity? The fiscal capacity would not be affected at all. It needs a change in the monetary arrangements to allow that to take place, which is a very marginal change. Given the dominance of monetary policy in the last 40-odd years, the idea that fiscal policy has an important role in the functioning of the economy is something that orthodox economists have difficulty with, and they have all sorts of reasons why it has bad consequences. So what we're saying is that the, the bonds affect monetary policy, they don't affect fiscal policy. Isn't it understood by Treasury and by economists and by politicians and journalists that there's no connection between issuing bonds and fiscal policy? And if, if that is understood, how can they perpetuate the myth that we have a debt to repay? Or is it a case that it's not understood and that they're under a, a misunderstanding? I think it is understood. And I think that the problem is that the political dialogue over many, many years, really since Bill Hayden's budget under the Whitlam government, is that we judge the treasurer according to his or her capacity to balance the books or ideally run a surplus. So good economic management is all about running surpluses. And of course, Peter Costello presided over about nine or 10 years when surpluses were achieved. And he has a reputation for being a very good economic manager. Now, running a surplus has some very undesirable outcomes. Okay. If you think about the macroeconomy and the government spending, let's say, a thousand billion and receiving 1,200 billion in taxes, then they are having a, effectively a negative effect on the macroeconomy as a whole, running a budget surplus. So the net financial assets held by the non-government sector are diminishing. Are they running a surplus when they really shouldn't be? Well, exactly. And if you look at Costello as treasurer and you look at what happened to household debt as a share of, of disposable income, then it increased dramatically. Private debt which is a whole different thing, and that's because they don't issue the currency, does need to be paid back. Yes. So people confuse fiscal policy with monetary policy because when the government engages in spending, as it is at the moment, the spending affects monetary policy. And the way to control monetary policy to try and reach the, the, the target uh, interest rate is by issuing bonds. So it happens at the same time as government spending, the bonds are issued uh, to control monetary policy, but it appears that they're funding uh, government spending, which is to say fiscal policy. Well, there's one other thing, which is what we've established is that the debt is not in any sense providing the funds to finance the spending. I mean, the spending has been conducted very simply by the Treasury crediting bank accounts. But the, the reason it has to act and sell debt is because of the discrepancy between the rate that the Reserve Bank 
pays on reserves, 0.1, and the target rate of 0.25. Now, if the support rate, the rate that the banks get of 0.1 was raised to 0.25, then the, there would be no downward pressure on the interbank rate when there were excess reserves in the system because the alternative to lending the excess reserves to other banks is getting 0.25 from the central bank. Yeah, so why don't they do that? Well, that's a very interesting question. That's known as overt monetary financing. It's advocated by various people, including Adair Turner, who's a very well-known economist in the UK who's held senior government positions. But he wants to add some strings to the process of overt monetary financing by arguing that, in fact, the central bank should be able to indicate how much overt monetary financing can take place. The central bank should have a role in terms of this overt monetary financing. That is somewhat curious because it is further denuding the role of the political system in making macroeconomic decisions. And now Adair Turner is saying, well, they should also have a role in influencing fiscal policy too. So this overt monetary financing could end up having a little bit of a power play with the central bank having a little bit more say in what the parliament is deciding. Well, I think the central bank, according to Adair Turner at least, would determine the quantum. It wouldn't be determining you know, how the money was spent. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You know, Kevin, I don't think you could ever find a more understated guy than Martin. He's got that real English reserve about him. And so when Martin says that something is somewhat curious, I think that means you really need to sit up and take notice. So somewhat, so somewhat curious yeah. by Martin Watts means this is completely outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and what he's talking about is these central banks, you know, their cover is starting to be blown about this whole thing about having to issue the bonds in order to cover the government debt. So now the central bank is over in the UK and you can bet that they're talking to the central bankers in Australia. They're starting to say, well, maybe we could do this thing called overt monetary financing, which means that you're letting the interest rates fall to the floor, which means that you're not issuing bonds. But maybe when we do this overt monetary financing, we need to put a spending cap on it, which is essentially saying that the central bank can say to the federal government the limit on how much they can spend. <laughs> which politicises the central bank then. And look, and look, there's a whole conversation that can be had about um, overt monetary financing and the implications of that. But I think the main thing we take from overt monetary financing is that there's another way for governments to mm -hmm. organise their debt, which mm -hmm. is to say that there's another way for the government to organise their fiscal spending, that there's a whole range of options that need to be explored. Exactly. And that's all we're trying to do is start that conversation about, about the options. Yeah, and I go into that a little bit with Dr James Juniper, who will explain how this overt monetary financing is the alternative way of managing interest rates rather than this whole business of issuing bonds, which 
can then be used to scare everyone about the debt. Let's throw to your interview with James Juniper. I'm delighted to be able to speak today with Dr. James Juniper, who is an economist. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, James. Thank you very much, and um, thanks for inviting me. Well, it's great for us to have an economist because, of course, we do try and look at the issues around unemployment from a point of view of macroeconomics. Perhaps as a way of starting, could I ask you just to tell listeners a little bit about your background as an economist and something of your career in the public service? I studied economics at ANU. I ended up doing my master's there. And I was working at the time in the Bureau of Industry Economics, which was part of Senator Button's Department of Industry, Technology and Commerce. So it was during the Hawke-Keating years. And then had to go back to Adelaide for personal reasons. And I was under an interchange with the Trades and Labor Council. So I worked there for a year. And then I got a job in the State Department of well, State Development and Technology at the time. And I worked there until um, the State Bank of South Australia collapsed, owing $3.5 billion. And I jumped ship into academe. And uh, I started work at the Institute of Technology, which became the University of South Australia. And I've been at the University of Newcastle for 18 years as well, uh, worked with the Centre for Full Employment and Equity in the faculty teaching, and I'm now a, a conjoint. And I've recently retired, but I'm still supervising five PhDs at the moment. So was Newcastle your first brush with modern monetary theory? Uh, yes, although Bill Mitchell was attached to Flinders Uni and uh, we had sort of overlapped a bit. Um, I used to work on budget reports for the um, public sector unions the one topic that keeps coming up at the moment, and I think probably because it's such a good learning moment with this pandemic lockdown and all the money that the government is spending, is this question now of what is government debt and do we need to worry about it? Hmm. Especially given that we know on this show, we say it often enough, that the Australian government is the issuer of the currency. Mm. So the Australian government issues Australian dollars and it can never run out of those dollars. So why would this thing like the national debt rear its ugly head? Well, national debt as such is comprised of a debt of the government sector and, of course, debt of the non-government sector. And the problem with debt rising as a proportion of GDP is beyond a certain point the flow of interest payments in regard to that debt could represent a sizable portion of national output or GDP. And um, that's always seen as a, the ultimate barrier. But from an MMT perspective, if you're in an economy where you've got a very high level of underutilized capacity and underutilization of labor, then you can expand quite rapidly and your debt-to-GDP ratios won't necessarily increase. Mm -hmm. This notion of debt levels being too high needs to be put in context. Uh, if you look at uh, federal government deficits and debt over the whole period of federation, as the uh, Treasury did recently, um, it's recognised that uh, during the Second World War, debt-to-GDP ratios rose well above 100%. And we have a considerable amount uh, to go before we reach those levels. The economic and fiscal update that Treasury released in 2020, they were projecting that uh, gross debt would reach 34% of GDP in 
June of this year, and it was expected to reach 45% in June next year. But net debt would increase to around 25% of GDP uh, June this year and up to 36% in June of next year. So those levels are much lower than uh, the levels that were reached in the Second World War. So I've heard people describe the the national debt as the accumulation of all the deficits through time. Is that a reasonable... That's Well, there's the national debt, both public and private, and then there's the government debt and government debt to GDP ratios. So you've got public and private. Oh, my God. This whole thing, national debt and government debt. Yep. Although you did say at the beginning, national debt is household debt plus government debt. Uh, But not just household, but firm debt as well, yeah. So you've got banks, households, firms, and government. And domestic private sector is households and firms. And then, of course, you've also got foreign debt, exports and imports, net foreign debt. Let me see if I'm understanding this. Mm. So the national debt Mm. equals private debt, which includes households and firms, Mm -hmm. foreign sector plus the federal government. Yeah. And then the government debt is just these bonds that we're talking about. That's right. Hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) So just on my misunderstanding of what debt is, (laughs) so just to clarify on the whole, let's define our terms before we even go Hmm. anywhere. When the commentators in the media are talking about this awful debt that our grandchildren will have to pay back, um, which debt are they talking about? Well, they're talking about net debt. And they're talking about net government debt. And so if you're looking at debt to GDP ratios, you should really be looking at net debt to GDP. And similarly with foreign sector debt, you should be looking at net foreign sector debt rather than gross. So net debt, what are you, what are you saying is net debt then? So the government can sell bonds to the private sector, but there can be offsetting lending activity going on as well. So if you net out the borrowing and the lending, you get the net debt. And it's the same thing with foreign debt. We've got debt we owe to the rest of the world, and then there's the amount the rest of the world has borrowed from us. So it's an exchange of IOUs, and the net is what washes out. Okay. And another factor is that you can actually deficit spend without creating debt. Now, that's a novel idea. (laughs) We need to have that one explained. Now, that's a bit tricky because currently in Australia, we have this arrangement that's called uh, full funding, and it was introduced gradually through the 1980s, supposedly on the basis of sound financial management. The idea is to separate the costs associated with the management of government debt from um, those factors that influence the cost and availability of money and credit, in other words, targeting interest rates. And The way it works is that Treasury is obliged to match their deficit spending with the creation of debt fully, 100%. And then it's up to the Reserve Bank to engage in what are called open market operations, buying and selling government bonds to the non-government sector to either absorb liquidity or inject liquidity into the economy. When you say that the government is obliged Mm. to uh, issue these bonds, which are known as debt, is that obligation in law or is it more of like a policy or a guideline or something? 
Well, it was legislated so that budget deficits now must be fully funded by the issue of securities at market rates of interest. Oh, okay. Now, the government then decides on the proportions that are going to be issued in the form of treasury bonds or treasury notes or index bonds, and also the proportion of issues that are going to be made in Australia and overseas. Although recently, all bonds have been issued in Australian dollars in the domestic market. So... When we say full funding, the full part is that, what is it, like almost dollar for dollar when the government is spending. So, for example, I've heard a number of somewhere around $80 billion, which is covering the job keeper and job seeker spending at the moment. So for that $80 billion, the Treasury would be issuing $80 billion worth of Treasury securities. Exactly. And that's required. That's right, yep. And so that's why it's called full funding, because it's matching dollar for dollar the amount of deficit spending with the amount of bonds that are issued. That's right. Okay. So that's the sort of debt management side of things. And the Reserve Bank is then seen as having responsibility for monetary policy, which um, under current arrangements means that they have to try and achieve target interest rates. So every time... The Reserve Bank sets the interest rate. It releases a monetary policy statement explaining um, the reasoning behind choosing that particular target. So open market operations then uh, are what the Reserve Bank does to achieve their target interest rate. So we have a treasury in Canberra, which is like a department of the government, and we have a central bank. It's called the Reserve Bank of Australia or the RBA. And both of those entities can sell bonds and they can buy bonds. Mm. So we have in Australia a corridor system where you have a ceiling which is set by the penalty rate when banks have to borrow at a penalty from the central bank. And we also have what's called a support rate, which is the rate at which commercial banks can earn interest on their reserves with the central bank. And the target rate moves between the ceiling, penalty rate, and the floor support rate. Now, if the government is deficit spending, they're injecting liquidity into the economy because they're spending more than they're pulling back out in the form of tax revenue. So they're injecting liquidity into the economy. And if the Reserve Bank is um, wanting to achieve a positive interest rate, well, when the government is deficit spending, what the Reserve Bank then has to do is sell bonds to absorb some of that liquidity. Otherwise, the price of bonds will rise and interest rates will fall, and they'll keep on falling until they hit the support rate, which is the bottom floor. So by the same token, if the government were running a surplus, that would be sucking liquidity out of the non-government sector and to achieve a positive interest rate on bonds, the overnight rate, the Reserve Bank would have to purchase securities and inject liquidity into the economy. So these open market operations, which are all about buying and selling bonds, which in turn is really all about converting reserves into bonds or bonds back into reserves. Mm. And that's all about managing your interest rate in what they're calling this corridor system, mm. which I think of it as corralling sheep through this, <laughs> through this corridor to make sure they stay inside the corridor. And that's how the central bank is managing interest rates. That's right. When they discuss open market operations, they mention that not only are these designed to achieve interest rate targets, they're also designed to ensure that 
the financial institutions in the non-government sector have these government bonds at their disposal, which can operate as um, low-risk assets. Certainly not zero risk, but but low risk. And um, the financial markets do get quite upset uh, <laughs> when governments uh, decide to run surpluses, and you know they they are deprived of this flow of low risk uh, assets that they can use to balance their portfolios. Mm-hmm. At the moment, the Reserve Bank has to repurchase the debt from the non-government sector. And, um, of course, Treasury still has to pay interest on their debt to the Reserve Bank. But then it would receive it back again in the form of profit income at the end of the uh, financial year. But, of course, it would be more sensible if that sort of yoga trick were avoided completely. (laughs) So MMT advocates say, well, it's probably always better to think of the Treasury functions and the central bank functions as merged together. And that gives you a much better understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Instead, we have this full funding arrangement, which is a bit like a, a voluntary constraint that the government imposes on itself, which should be looked at as a, an identity rather than a constraint. And what it says is that the budget deficit has to be equal to the growth in the money supply plus the growth in debt or bond issue. And if you understand it, as a constraint, it's saying that governments are like households. They have to fund their deficits, either through issuing debt or by printing money. And if you understand it as an identity, what it basically says is that if you're deficit spending, you're creating net financial assets. You're either issuing money, keystroking money into existence, or you're making uh, bonds available to the non-government sector. And the proportions in which that occurs is going to add up to the size of the deficit. So government deficit, net financial asset creation. And net financial assets are basically money plus bonds. Now, the issue of the constraints, of course, comes back to the Austrian economists and conservative economists who didn't trust government and wanted to give the central banks the responsibility for the conduct of monetary policy to control inflation. All these so-called voluntary fiscal constraints get put in place and then the government then has to game that system in order to do its fiscal spending. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. If you sort of ask about the underlying rationale for all this, it comes down to um, a lack of trust in the ability of the government to conduct monetary policy, to set interest rates, if you will, uh, with credibility. Mm -hmm. Now, this sort of mistrusting of government in the context of uh, monetary policy really began with the first wave of monetarism in Australia. We had the Bill Hayden budget where we abandoned full employment. Philip Lynch, who was going to become the treasurer uh, in Malcolm Fraser's government, invited Milton Friedman to Australia to give a series of talks and meet uh, officials. Milton Friedman. He was invited into Australia. Oh, my gosh. And Milton Friedman kept on warning about, you know, when we take the inflation genie out of the bottle, it's very hard to put the genie back into the bottle again. (laughs) and that monetary policy has long and variable lags and 
governments always seem to get things wrong. They raise interest rates when they should be lowering them and lower interest rates when they should be raising them. (laughs) And there was this general atmosphere of mistrust. It was argued that uh, creating money would lead to inflation. And if the government instead issued debt, the danger was that that debt could keep on accumulating and building up out of control. That's really interesting to hear you talk about Friedman sort of stoking that fear of the government not being able to control itself when it came to spending and managing interest rates. And that parallels another story I came across, which is this great piece of audio, and we might even be able to have a listen to it. Mm. And it was produced by ABC Radio National. It's part of their Boyer Lecture Series, and it was given by Ian McFarlane who at that point, he was the outgoing governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia. And my idea about it is if there was ever going to be a a very orthodox economist, it would have to be your governor of the Reserve Bank. So what he's offering back in 2006, just before, of course, the global financial crisis, the GFC, is he's taking a retrospective of what went on in the Australian economy and he's trying to explain it for the layperson. So that's that's what I really appreciate that what Ian's doing here is he's talking in terms that even I can almost understand. In 1979, Treasurer Howard established a committee of inquiry, the Campbell Committee, and the implementation of its recommendations transformed the Australian financial system and much of the economy as well. The most important change was the introduction of the tender system for the sale of Treasury notes in 1979 and Treasury bonds in 1982. This change to the method of selling government securities was a major reform, which has not been accorded the recognition it deserves. It was second only in importance to the float of the Australian dollar in 1983. Prior to the introduction of the tender system, the Australian monetary framework had suffered from a fatal flaw. When the government ran a budget deficit, it attempted to finance it by borrowing from the public, as it should, but it retained control over the level of interest rates on the securities that it offered. In a period of rising inflation, it was necessary to raise interest rates quickly so the securities would be attractive to investors. Unfortunately, in these circumstances, governments, wary of popular opinion, invariably fail to raise interest rates enough. Thus, the economy was being run with interest rates set by the government that did not even keep up with inflation, and hence applied a monetary stimulus to an economy already suffering from high inflation. Because the public did not buy enough government securities, the government therefore had to finance its deficit by borrowing from the Reserve Bank, a means of financing that is colloquially known as printing money or monetising the deficit. Until the situation was remedied by the introduction of the tender system, there was never any hope of seriously addressing the inflation problem. These two major macroeconomic reforms, the floating of the Australian dollar and the introduction of the tender system for selling government securities, were well received, and to the best of my knowledge, there have been no calls to return to earlier arrangements. He's talking about this same era that you're talking about, which is this early 1980s. And he's saying 
that there were a few really important things that happened back then. And one of them was something which we've talked about on the show here before, which was the floating of the Australian dollar. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that was so important because it changed the monetary system that we're operating in. So it didn't change the fact that the Australian government is the currency issuer, but it changed the context in which that issuing happens and how much spending you can do. Mm -hmm. But he says the second most important thing at that time, according to Ian, was, in his words, the introduction of the tender system for the sale of treasury securities. So for him, that was a really important moment. And I'm just wondering if you'd want to comment on that, because what I'm sensing that he was somebody who also felt like you had to put something between the government and the central bank. Otherwise, they were just too close together. If if you had the treasury and the central bank operating too closely in coordination, then you had too much political influence. That's right. We had the introduction of a tender system for treasury notes in about 1979 and for bonds in 1982. There were still Australian savings bonds and, you know, the take-up and redemption of those uh, was another sort of source of unpredictability. And they were eventually replaced by the issue of uh, treasury index bonds. So that was all part of this, as you point out, this separation of reserve bank operations from, from those of treasury. And designed to allow the Treasury to engage in the management of debt in isolation from the central bank, which had responsibility for controlling interest rates on um, money and rates of growth of credit, that sort of thing. They went from what Ian describes as a tap system to a tender system. So the tap system, is that when the central bank was buying bonds directly from the treasury? Uh, I mean, there's this issue of whether the treasury can directly intervene in the primary market or only in the secondary market. And um, this separation essentially implies that treasury now have to deal in the secondary market. And so that introduces the market into the whole buying and selling business. So now we've got a market created, which is what this tender system is, because what that's doing is auctioning off the bonds to other entities like hedge funds or something. I'm trying to imagine who they are. Well, financial institutions in general, yeah. Mm -hmm. They put the market in between the treasury and the central bank, like you're trying to separate these siblings, (laughs) as their way of putting a constraint around what they feel like is what the politicians get up to. Yeah, I mean, the idea is that the central bank, the Reserve Bank in Australia, can now focus solely on managing inflation and its principal instrument for achieving that is the target rate of interest. I mean, what's ironical is that back in the um, late 70s and early 80s, we were continually barraged by this sort of fear of foreign debt. And um, in the, the run-up to the Hawke-Keating years, I mean, Johnny Howard used to drive around in a the debt truck, which is a van with a graph of our foreign debt. <laughs> painted onto it uh, and going through the ceiling of uh, up to the up to the roof of the van. Oh my gosh, that's better than a debt clock. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So there's this big fear that foreign debt was growing and it was out of control. And there was this notion that when we started to inflate the economy, we started to grow too fast, we'd suck imports in, that would drive the current account into dangerous territory, we'd have to slam on the brakes and slow the economy again. So it was this idea that we were engaging in stop-go policies 
of acceleration and deceleration. That was true of a fixed exchange rate. Exactly. But once we floated the uh, the exchange rate, um, we didn't have those worries, and no one really talks about foreign debt anymore. Uh, it's just dropped off the radar as, a, as an issue. Well, as it should, I guess. Yeah, but we still have this fear built up about government debt and, of course, this notion that the government is like a household. We ought to be uh, financing our spending. We have to accumulate sources of income or we can borrow uh, if we want to spend. And that's a total rubbish, of course. Well, economics is no fun if you don't have a boogeyman. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So am I right in thinking that despite this introduction of constraints and of full funding and of a market system for selling the bonds, that it still makes logical sense to think of the fiscal and the monetary policy, that is the Treasury and the Central Bank or the RBA, they still have to coordinate pretty closely. Mm. In fact, so closely that government spending doesn't rely on what the central bank's doing. The central bank, in a way, still responds to whatever deficit spending is happening. Well, that's the moot point. I mean, formally, we talk about the fact that monetary policy has to accommodate fiscal policy. And just an example of that, if we return to a budget deficit situation again, when you're deficit spending, you're injecting liquidity into the economy, and the exact match of bonds or money is determined by the target rate that the central bank wants to achieve uh, in the market. And that will determine how many bonds they then end up selling. So um, the central bank in managing monetary policy has to accommodate fiscal decisions of the treasury. So the notion that the central bank is autonomous, of course, comes down to whether they have the freedom to set that target rate at a high enough level to nip inflation in the bud. And, of course, the other thing that's now popular is this notion of a transparent set of rules for the conduct of monetary policy so that uh, investors know when the central bank is going to intervene, what sort of target corridor for inflation rates is being um, adhered to when it comes to the conduct of monetary policy. So this monetarism that we were talking about earlier, this distrust, it's gone down the um, the academic generations at least. It's an Austrian disease, really. I mean, if you think about what the Austrians admired, it was you know, the logic of the market and entrepreneurship and the power of consumption, the subjective elements of commodity value. You know, they really privilege subjective as well as objective value. But, of course, the privileging of um, monetarism from the mid-'70s onwards gave Chicago uh, a lot of kudos. Chicago is really the heartland of American-Austrian economics. One thing that becomes a bit more apparent Mm. once you understand that the Australian government issues Australian dollars that can't run out of them, and once you understand that this issuing bonds is not what I understand economists call a borrowing operation, it's not at all about the government borrowing money from the private sector in order to be able to spend. Mm. So then this idea comes up, well, if it's an interest rate or a monetary operation, then perhaps there's another way we could deal with the interest rate problem. And I've heard that being called overt monetary financing. That's correct. That's sort of like the alternative, isn't it, to this corridor system for full funding. Mm. Can you describe what that is and what the pros and cons might be? 
Well, overt monetary financing arises when the government is in deficit spending. And rather than there being any issue of debt, the deficit spending, which is injecting liquidity into the economy, is allowed to continue until the target rate collapses onto the support rate or the floor of the corridor system. And you can keep on deficit spending. And what will happen is that reserves will be accumulating, but you're not actually issuing debt to match that deficit spending. So no debt is being issued. And of course, for the monetarists, that was anathema because you're printing money and that's going to directly, somehow mysteriously, influence the inflation rate. And of course, the monetarists encapsulated that in the notion of the quantity theory of money. And here, we assume that the velocity, the rate at which money turns over in the economy is fairly stable. You also assume that output tends to float fairly close to its natural rate of growth. And as a result, if you've got an excess creation of money, growth in the money supply, that's going to lead directly to inflation. So that was the argument of Milton Friedman and his friends, you know, in the late 70s and early 80s. So this argument about the best way to manage interest rates turns then into the argument about how to manage inflation, in fact, what inflation is, what causes it. And, mm. and so that's where you get those monetarist theories like the quantity theory of money that you just mentioned. Exactly. Yeah, everything comes back to controlling inflation and, and giving central banks autonomy to uh, follow that objective. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Kevin, I am shocked that Australia invited Milton Friedman out to have lunch with them because I think of Milton Friedman as like the arch devil of economics. <laughs> Milton Friedman is the architect of the greed is good mm. culture. He's the, the antichrist to social inclusion. He's just divisive. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's like inviting Goebbels out to give you some tips on messaging. <laughs> it's just like... Yeah. And then the Milton idea that central banks need to be independent and by controlling interest rates, you control inflation. I mean, all of that was coming out of Friedman. And most of the economics of that is hocus pocus. <laughs> Look, the, the only thing that we can thank Friedman for is that he introduced all of these theories, hmm. which we've tried out, and now we can prove that he was wrong. So, <laughs> so <laughs> Because the whole privatisation push was bad and by increasing the money supply, that alone does not create inflation. Right. So we've given him a good run for 30 or 40 years. The, the trouble is we've still got way too many people holding on to the Chicago School of Economists and Milton Friedman with some sort of degree of, of uh, relevance or authenticity. Right. All we've learned from Friedman is that most of what he said, said was, was wrong. Was garbage. And then after 30 or 40 <laughs> years, we've ended up with inequality and destruction and Thanks, a train Martin. wreck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love listening to um, Ian McFarlane, who is the former governor of the Reserve Bank. And did you hear him say he actually said that the government had to borrow from the public as they should? <laughs> As, As they, they should, should yeah. Kevin. They should borrow from the public. I mean, Ian's just a very orthodox economist, and it's so, so that's why it's fascinating to me to listen to what he has to say. Look, it is interesting, Anne, um, and I think we should hear some more from James. Uh, so let's continue the interview. If we look at this moment in history where people are being affected individually, they're being asked to stay at home or they're being asked to social distance, 
and where they're seeing themselves or their friends uh, losing work or their work styles being changed or there's a lot of uncertainty around having work in the future. And then we're also seeing the government spending both increasing unemployment benefits in the form of job seeker and also ensuring that employers and employees maintain relationships through the job keeper. And so this is all a really good teaching moment historically. Well, that's right. And the fear is that, yeah, we're racking up this huge debt level. This fear that you know, money doesn't grow on trees, we can't spend more because of this burgeoning debt. Uh, it's not really true. So we still have a considerable amount of room to manoeuvre in terms of debt, in terms of underutilisation of capacity and labour, and we can also invest in much-needed infrastructure to start making an impact in areas like climate change. Think about the Second World War, 100% GDP in the form of debt. But, of course, we had the era of full employment after the Second World War, where the unemployment rate never rose above 2%. And for 25 years, we had the economy growing at its maximum rate, and we were able to reduce debt-to-GDP ratios by maintaining growth in the economy at full capacity. And you would say that we were able to do that. Why? Because we were implementing Keynesian policies of full employment. So the government was spending? It was deficit spending when it needed to. I've heard people say of that era that it was exceptional because Mm. we were doing post-war reconstruction. Well, we, we were. But, you know, we're doing climate change reconstruction now. (laughs) We're doing reconstruction that reduces the likelihood of future pandemics. We're trying to rebuild local production and manufacturing. We've been relying too much on our exports of commodities. So you would say there is a lesson to be drawn from that era, the post-World War II era, for our current situation? Absolutely. Well, that's the the lesson that is being learnt by the Green New Deal advocates because they're saying, look, Keynes wrote this brilliant paper on how to pay for the war in the context of the Second World War, and we're now going to be on a a war-like footing in terms of the degree of mobilisation that's required to change the direction of the economy. And so we can follow Keynes's proposals very closely. One of the catchphrases I hear for what you're describing is that if it's technologically feasible, it's fiscally feasible. In other words, if we have the know-how or the resources to do it, then we can do it financially. Mm. Randy Ray has written a very good um, Levy Institute working paper on the Green New Deal, explaining how Keynes's paper on how to pay for the war has been taken up and applied to that agenda, boosting public investment in all these key areas of environmental sustainability. And I think everyone who you know who's in the Greens or who's interested in uh, environmental sustainability should read that paper to understand where people like um, Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are sort of coming from. You wouldn't happen to know the name of the paper. Oh, look, if you go to the Levy Institute and just type in Green New Deal, I think it will come up. L-E-V-Y Institute and search for Green New Deal and you'll find that paper. There's the hope. That's one of the reasons I'm into macro, even though I fumble around in it, because it gives you the hope. So you're saying it's not just a teaching moment. It seems to be, from an economic point of view, this pandemic lockdown. It's also an opportunity to set the economy on a different path. We can use this opportunity to really start building public infrastructure. Uh, We can do a lot of environmental investment uh, in uh, renewable energy. 
a number of studies and reports have come out about the green jobs that can be created in this way. But a lot of people talk about the need to create wildlife corridors. The bushfires really threw into relief the fact that you know there's nowhere for wildlife to go when so much of the the country is uh, burning. You know, when we've got a million hectares sort of up in uh, flames and smoke, and we don't have wildlife corridors that would allow wildlife to sort of escape. Yeah, you can combine things like um, a very fast rail network. If you use Chinese-style very fast trains on these concrete towers or pods, you can have wildlife corridors underneath, Mm. sort of create a a network of um, areas of land along the Great Dividing Range, for example. So, yeah, there are lots of things that we can uh, achieve with uh, a government that has a bit of vision and uh, a bit of courage. Well, James, I really appreciate you spending your time to give us some of your expert insights on what's happening with the economy and how we got where we are. Oh, well, look, thank you very much for having me, Anne, and I've really enjoyed it. What I like hearing from James is what I also liked hearing from Jed Carney is that you've got these people who have a vision, a really positive kind of vision, and it all comes down to can we trust the government to set up a program where all this positive sentiment can be applied? Once you look under the bed and realise that the debt boogeyman is actually not under there, you can sort of set your mind free to imagine what government spending would look like and, well, can we trust the government not to overspend? When the government is within an economic framework that I disagree with, so, for example, they think they have to worry about deficits and they have to try and have a budget surplus, even though I disagree with them, I think, well, they're still trying to be economically responsible. Like on both sides of the aisle, they still want to be seen as good economic managers. So if they understood or were willing to admit that the government can do a lot more deficit spending than it even is doing at the moment then why wouldn't they still be responsible about it? Like, I don't get this whole mistrust of government thing. Well, you can understand the mistrust of government, but then you've got to try and figure out what standard do you apply to economic management? Right. I think there's a really basic way that that you can look at this, and this is why the current government is introducing all of these socialist measures. And let's just call them for what they are. If you're going to pick (laughs) up the national wage bill and you're going to nationalise childcare, then Mm. you are implementing socialist policies, every bit as socialist as as a universal healthcare system. Which is perfectly fiscally doable. Financially, they can do it. (laughs) It needs to be done. But I think if you just use the basic measure of housing... Do people have a decent roof over their heads? Can they afford to feed themselves? These are some really basic measures of how your government is performing. Mm -hmm. So ScoMo and Frydenberg have introduced socialist measures because people need to be able to pay their rent, people need to be able to pay their mortgages. Now, the the cynicism in me says that it goes (laughs) further than that because when the government is looking after people paying their mortgages, actually they're really looking after the banks. Yes, you've just wandered into the territory of how money gets created out of the banking sector and what private debt is all about. So those are two other issues which we'll look at, I think, in the future. And this really pisses me off about the current uh, situation as well, where this constant refrain of we're all in this together. Mm. So when the shit hits the fan and we've all got to do some heavy lifting, we're all in this together. But you can bet your last dollar mm-hmm. that when things are back on a nice even keel, then it'll be every man for itself again uh, and we fall back into this, this neoliberal system that we've got. Well, we've already seen that one million casuals weren't in this together. 
no. <laughs> including people who work in the academic and arts sectors. Yeah, correct. We're all this together, but some of us are more in this together than, than others. The, the inequality needs to be addressed, and this is the perfect opportunity to address inequality. Yes. But getting back to government accountability, inevitably governments are held to account at elections if you have a functioning democracy. And if there's too much discontent in the electorate, the government will be held to account and hopefully replaced. And if their population has a bit of macroeconomic literacy, I think. Well, I guess that's where you and I come in, Anne. We uh, learn a few things and then we share it with other people and hopefully when it comes time to uh, vote and make an informed decision. You know, hopefully programs like this might start discussions which will then reverberate with the elected representatives who then have to start considering some of the real issues. Exactly. I've always felt that the, the real measure of the success of a population and its governance is how well are your poorest doing? Mm. Because if the worst off in your society are doing well, then you have a good system. But if the worst off in your society are, are struggling and doing terribly, then you've got a crap system. You know, And if you look at the states and you look at a lot of Western economies, we should never be so proud if, say, our indigenous population is suffering. That means we, we have failed at that basic mm. level. So you can't sit there and crow on about how you've had decades of economic growth and how GDP is rising. If you've got people in your system who are suffering unnecessarily, then you've failed. But there's a vision for a better future. I love James's, um, his wildlife corridors under fast trains. Like, why not? So you and I just screaming it from 3CR, just screaming out saying, there's a brilliant opportunity here, guys. You've got two main governments here. You've got the coalition or you've got Labor. Imagine if you had a Labor opposition run by Penny Wong, Tanya Plibersek, Jed Carney, mm. screaming out progressive agendas mm -hmm. that were aimed towards 40s and unders, full of environmental programs and, and social reform programs. Could that work at an election? I don't know. Mm. Not. I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm with you on that one. Yeah, be nice. Anyway, Anne. Um, uh, speaking of the girls. Speaking of the girls, we've got to make way for Mafalda. Uh, we'd always suggest that you check out the Unemployed Workers Union of Australia as well uh, and have a look at MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. That's something we're involved with. Um, and we'll be back in another couple of weeks to do it all again. Look forward. Catch you later. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests... And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was a very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you were having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did, because I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have to say, it was Bigger on the corner, no one's paradigm.